Welcome to Opera. Welcome to uh, Access Utah. Almost welcome to you to Opera Saturdays, a program I did for many years, uh, which will be appropriate uh, with the music we're hearing today. On Access Utah today, we're going to hear extensive music from uh, Gustav Mahler, from his Third Symphony. That uh, great symphony will be performed this Saturday by forces of Utah State University. Austrian guest conductor Christoph Campestrini from Vienna uh, Hofmusikkapelle, mezzo-soprano Tamara Mumford, who is a USU alumna and now sings with the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, the women of the USU choirs, the Cass Children's Choir, and the USU Symphony Orchestra. Uh, their music director will join us for this conversation, Sergio Bernal. All those forces will be performing Mahler's third. They're inviting you to immerse yourself in a universe of awakenings, nature, humankind, and eternity envisioned by Mahler, a composer for whom a symphony must be like the world. It must embrace everything. Those are the words of uh, Gustav Mahler. That uh, performance is uh, Saturday, 7.30 in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU uh, campus. And uh, so we welcome in our uh, panel today, and we'll hear, as I mentioned throughout the hour, some music of Gustav Mahler. Welcome in, uh, Sergio Bernal, who is uh, director of the uh, USU uh, Symphony. Thank you, Tom. Inducted around the world, I believe. And uh, Yes, and I'm, I've been at Utah State now for 18 years. 18 years. Okay. And I have enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, <laughs> we've enjoyed having you here. From Colombia? Correct. Uh, originally, you've you've conducted over the border with the Simon Bolivar Yes, I orchestra. lived for yeah. about 10 years in Venezuela and worked for El Sistema. Yeah. This pr- prodigious movement of youth and children's orchestras and choirs and bands that in, took over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, amazing. And uh, I don't know if you have friends still back in Venezuela. It must be. Yes. I, I don't know how that's affecting. Yes. Fr- oh, friends kids. and relatives, because okay. my wife is from Venezuela. Venezuela, okay, yeah. Well, there's a lot going in in Venezuela, and yes. hard times. No, <laughs> that no. is for sure. Yeah. Um, Christoph uh, Campestrini um, from Austria, and you're associated with Vienna Hofmusikkapelle? Yes, it's true. Did I get close on that? Yeah, excellent. Okay. Perfect pronunciation. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much for having me. It's a big pleasure being here in Utah this week, especially for conducting uh, music from somebody else from Vienna, Gustav Mahler, who I feel very close to, and it's always a great uh, mission to be working on the music uh, of Mahler because it's music that uh, really gets close into the hearts of people and that always uh, connects people both on and off stage. Yeah. Um, and Tamara Mumford, you're a USU alumna, right? That's right. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, uh, I suppose it's okay to say you've you made the big time. You're Sing at the Met? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I earn a living doing yeah. this thing I love, so <laughs> that, that's pretty that, good. That's right. And at the Met. <laughs> yeah, weekend, that, yeah, that's true. It's <laughs> like making the Yankees, right? So, <laughs> uh, so well, what's it like? Yeah, well, I'm pretty glad to be back home. At, you, you know, Utah State is where I really discovered discovered the music of Mahler, actually. I was just thinking about that with my teacher at USU, Cindy Dewey. She and I uh, were listening to the Rückert Lieder. I was trying to choose, uh, and that was the first that I'd heard 
Mahler's songs and we just listened in her office and wept <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're such beautiful songs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now I'm singing Mahler all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I do uh, opera work, of course, at the Metropolitan Opera and other places, but also I get to do a lot of concert work. So yeah. I've been able to sing a lot of Mahler yeah. know, since then. So. Uh, record leader, what what are, what are those songs about? Oh, um, a lot of things. I mean, about life, about, about loss, about love, about all the things that were important to Mahler, you know, um, he was always kind of searching through nature to find meaning in in this life that we lead and to f- trying to find the meaning in the pain that we feel. So, mm. yeah, just beautiful songs. Uh, so, Christoph Campestrina, I want I to talk a little bit about Mahler. Fascinating life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, the life isn't the music, but it, there's, there's connection. In his case in particular, yeah. In particular, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, born to a Jewish family, yes. converted to Catholicism later, but uh, was reading the, the, the epithets thrown at him later in his life were had to do with his Jewish heritage yes, often. Yes, yes. Right? Um, somewhat tempestuous marriage, a lot of love it sounded like in to there. To say the least, the, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, his wife was a composer, right? And he... Yes, uh, his wife um, was uh, Alma Maria Mahler, and uh, she was uh, uh, the daughter of a famous um, uh, painter, um, a Schindler fa- family, and uh, they um, had a quite a big uh, age difference. Um, and uh, she helped him with a lot of his work. He, she was not only the muse um, for for his uh, inspiration, but also uh, wrote a lot of the scores with him and and advised him but uh, you know you speak about Mahler and and uh, the foremost thing that comes to my mind if I think about him as a man and as a person of course that's um, also reflected in the music is uh, his sense of alienation of feeling alienated he said once um, he felt alienated as a Czech uh, being Czech born in within Austria within the Austrian Hungarian Empire as an Austrian living in Germany, uh, he felt alienated and he felt also alienated as a Jew in the world. So you find all of these deep levels in, in, in his music. Um, also, uh, he was the first to use uh, music as a collage of different impressions that don't have to be necessarily united. Uh, that can be quite uh, harsh in its um, opposition, in its contrast. You hear, for instance, uh, a lot of brass music uh, from the local brass bands that he had heard in his youth. And he said once in a letter, um, for him, when he heard these uh, Austrian-Czech brass bands playing, that somehow uh, was associated with the loss of his many siblings. You have to understand that out of the 12 children that his mother gave birth to, nine didn't survive. So he grew up in, in a life where constantly a new sibling was born and passed away. Uh, then And then the other two also passed away before him. So this idea of death being a present uh, um, uh, presence in everyday life was something that... Uh, you can feel very much in his music, but not in a negative way, just in, in a way to deepen 
the experience of existing and to uh, appreciate what we have on, on the deepest level. So you find with him a lot of qualities that appeal to people so directly. That's why I totally agree with what uh, Sergei and, and Tammy said before, that it's a, a, a piece that... Um, you can appreciate on so many levels and that goes into the soul right away. It's certainly one of the uh, most fascinating figures of the 20th, early 20th century and in many ways you can also feel in his music a premonition of the great tragedies uh, historically that were happening afterwards. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of this coming together with uh, the huge personality of just a fabulous musician where when you hear a single bar you you know that has to be Mahler and nobody else in the world mm -hmm. could have written that that bar just makes up for a very powerful mix mm -hmm. uh, he lost one of his girls as well little, yes little girls as well yeah uh, that's I guess that led to the Kindertoten leader that well, actually, uh, and that, I must say, I really understand Alma Mahler. She was so upset yeah. and, and angry with him because he wrote these Kindertotenlieder before that happened. Mm -hmm. And she and these said... Are the, these are the translation... Uh, it means the, the, the songs of... of uh, their children, maybe, right, yeah. right, and uh, and she and she's and and this he wrote. Uh, uh, he was fascinated by the poems. Wow, they had two beautiful young little girls, and and his wife, I think, rightfully said. So he wrote these before, before, before the death what of his girl. What are you, okay. uh, yeah. you, you know, tempting here, fate with with this? And it, that actually happened uh, exactly the same. That uh, what is this being described in the songs that he did lose a, a child. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, tragic, tragic. Mm -hmm. So Sergio Benal, um, this is ambitious. <laughs> yes, Mahler's third big, yes. big for a lot of forces on on stage. In fact, I was reading that uh, this this uh, symphony was not fully performed and complete uh, for several years. I guess that's maybe right. because all the forces needed. Yes, and and Mahler would uh, try some of the movements before giving the premiere of the entire work. Yeah, but you've 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 bitten this off. You're yeah, chewing and, it, so and, to speak. And this, yeah, yeah. Yes, and this symphony is the longest of Mahler's symphonies, mm -hmm. and uh, arguably the longest symphony in the standard repertoire. Mm -hmm. A performance of it takes about one hundred minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So like a long film somehow. Yeah, like a long <laughs> film. Okay, <laughs> all right, very, very good, very good. Um, Christoph uh, Capistrini, I want to talk a little bit about Mahler. Fascinating life. Um, he was known, as I'm reading this, uh, more as a conductor in his in his in his time, and, and then his reputation as a composer came along, right? And that had actually a great advantage to his work as a composer, also, because mm -hmm. during the year he would uh, serve as music director of the Vienna State Opera, work mostly on opera. Interestingly enough. Uh, um, whereas he never wrote an opera himself. Mm -hmm. He, the, the big fanatic of voices and of opera, is quite interesting. Might be one of the reasons why he was the first after Beethoven to introduce the a voice into the symphonic world. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, uh, from a musical point of view, it's fascinating to see too how his work uh, as a conductor, his intimate knowledge of the orchestra with all great sense uh, for orchestration, for instance, also enabled him as a composer to come up with the most unusual combinations, colors, and new techniques uh, of the orchestra. I would uh, say that uh, in the late 19th and earliest 20th century, he was one of the great uh, new developers of the orchestra. He uh, brought the orchestra to limits in sound, in in expression that were unheard of at the time. And uh, he was also somebody who would constantly work on his scores. For instance, when he would uh, repeatedly perform the same work, he always made alterations, changements, Mm -hmm. because it was uh, an ongoing quest for the eternal artistic truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said once also that for him, tradition was not an uh, adoration of the ashes, but the passing on of the torch of fire. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's <laughs> a very um, well significant motto for all of his life. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I-, I read that he rescored Beethoven's Ninth. Not only that, that it actually <laughs> takes some chutzpah. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, actually, his uh, approach was quite uh, understandable. He felt that the instruments uh, by his time had made a big leap forward, and one should use uh, the means of the time to express what Beethoven had in mind. He did the same thing for all the Schumann symphonies, mm. and actually. Um, from this point of view, I think he would not mind if one did the same to his symphonies today. <laughs> Few people dare to do that, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's the kind of very creative approach to music where everything is in in a flow and in in a flow to the best possible attainable good. Mm-hmm. So I, you, you say he wouldn't mind if people rescored his symphonies. I wonder how he'd feel about the Mahler societies. It's kind of, maybe it's more moving more toward venerating the ashes. I don't know what you would think. You know, looking at Mahler's actually, um, I don't know how to describe this, uh, a, a, a bit... Um, Ironic that now, as you say, there are Mahler societies, there's a global uh, adoration of his music at his time. He was mostly uh, uh, revered as a conductor, heavily criticized as as a composer, especially in Vienna, uh, where people thought his music was over the top, was Mm -hmm. not within the confinement of what classical music should be. It got to the point that he felt so frustrated, so sad about not being understood as a composer, that he would say uh, this famous quote, one day my time will come. And if one thing we can say for sure now, his time has come. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, well, a bit of an irony or a, a sad aspect in so many composers' lives that while they were alive, while they were creating these, all these wonderful works for us, uh, the recognition of their work was not as strong as after their passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll ask this question of both to you, Sergio and, and Tamara. Sergio Banal, what is it about Mahler that you think his time has come and it stayed, right? He's stood the oh, test yes. of time. Yes. There is so much in his music. In other composers, other great composers, you find much of something and uh, for each composer, it, it, it is something unique. In Mahler, you find much of, of many things. You find uh, an incredible gamma of, of meaning, 
of expression, depth, uh, different, uh, the scope of his works. Some is, he has a very large view of, of life and the universe, but then suddenly you will be in the smallest detail and a very fragile moment. In this third symphony, for example, we were just commenting with Tamara how the voice appears uh, an hour into the symphony. So the ear of, of the audience and the musicians have been hearing instrumental music for about an hour, and then suddenly the music becomes very, very bare and, and very intimate, and then suddenly you hear the human voice. And of course, that is a very significant moment in the meaning of the whole progression of the, of the whole message of the, of the symphony. Mm. So, so music that that is that is says so much about about so much. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue yeah. to talk to Tamara Mumford because that's that's your voice. That's right. That's <laughs> right? my voice that comes in. Yeah. And, and it is. It is set so simply. It's so sparse there. And the thing with Mahler's music is, you know, it is. A large orchestra. There are great forces that it, you know that it takes to to produce this symphony. So then, when suddenly, it's just pared down, and you hear this very simple voice. It's 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 very moving. Let's hear a bit of uh, that music when uh, the voice of the soprano appears, and we do have a recording. You can find this on YouTube, by the way, uh, with Tamara Mumford uh, singing the alto part here. Uh, this is from Mahler's Symphony Number no. Three. And um, we will hear the Radio Philharmonic Orchestra um, in the Netherlands, conducted by Marcus Stentz. The Women of the Netherlands Radio Choir, National Children's Choir, are featured in this recording. And the voice we'll hear is uh, Alto Tamara Mumford.
And there is just something about uh, the, the the contrasts in um, in the music that just that just touch me. I mean, the way that it can just be so big and so larger than life for somebody who never wrote an opera, you know, to have it so operatic in scope. Um, and then in other ways be just pared down to almost, you know, like, like chamber music, like a, like a simple leet, just a, um, where it's just about the text and communicating with an audience. And I find that to just be uh, intoxicating, something about that mix. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're featuring conversation I recorded yesterday with uh, three folks involved in uh, a big undertaking. It's always a big undertaking when uh, you perform Mahler's Third Symphony, any of his symphonies. Uh, Mahler's Third will be performed by the USU Symphony Orchestra and uh, many other forces, uh, including the women of the USU Choirs, the Cash Children's Choir, USU Symphony Orchestra, as I mentioned, with Austrian guest conductor Christoph Campestrini, mezzo-soprano Tamara Mumford from the Metropolitan Opera, also a USU alumna, and we're talking with those two on the program today, along with the USU uh, Symphony Orchestra music director, Sergio Bernal. We'll have more conversation and more music from Mahler's Third um, following the break. I should mention before we go to break where you can go and when. Uh, so Saturday, this Saturday, 7.30 p.m., Dane's Concert Hall is where you can catch the Mahler's Third Symphony. More following this break. The history of body modification is as old as humanity itself. Some of the most common body modifications present in American culture, including dyed hair, makeup, tattoos, piercings, and implants, are those that we observe around the world and throughout time. Nose piercing is mentioned in the Old Testament, and tongue piercing was practiced by the ancient Aztecs and Mayans of Central America. Otzi, a Bronze Age ice mummy, bears evidence that his ears were not only pierced, but gauged. His remains also show that he had at least 57 tattoos on different parts of his body. Body modification today is practiced for the same reasons it has historically been popular. Rites of passage, social belonging, and fashion. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, taking a look at uh, classical music, and specifically Gustav Mahler, great Austrian uh, composer and even more specifically, his Third Symphony. Mahler's Third Symphony will be performed on the USU campus on Saturday, 7.30 p.m., Dane's Concert Hall, and uh, the USU Symphony Orchestra, along with the women of the USU Choirs, Cash Children's Choir, uh, conducted by Austrian guest conductor Christoph Campestrini. The mezzo-soprano here is uh, Tamara Mumford, USU alumna and uh, sings with the Metropolitan Opera. We're talking with those two on the program today, along with the uh, USU Symphony Orchestra music director, Sergio Bernal. Maybe have you compare and contrast. I mean, you sing opera. Exactly. You sing on mm-hmm. the stages, sing the concert stage as well. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's uh, both satisfying in different ways? What to, Tell yeah, me about that. You know, I feel really fortunate that there there happens to be a lot that's written for my voice type, so I'm able to do a lot of concert work. And uh, there's you're, something... You're a mezzo? I'm a mezzo, mezzo that's sprout, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah a, a, a low mezzo at that. So mm-hmm. there's really a lot of alto works. And it's something so satisfying about sitting there on the stage with the orchestra, with the conductor there by your side. What that just It feels like you're just a part of this, something that's just really 
special. You know, you're just a part of this thing that you're communicating with an audience and you're there with the orchestra as an ensemble in this way that feels different from opera where you're, uh, you know, you have the costumes and the wigs and you're, you know, talking to the other characters on stage and the orchestra is down in the pit and the conductor's way out there. And it's, the connection is, is different. It's different. I mean, I love both, but there's something about concert music that, um, that I just, I can't, I can't get over it. There's mm-hmm. a moment when, especially in this piece, where I'm finished singing and I just get to sit there on the stage with the orchestra and the music is still happening all around me and my part is finished. And it just, it's th- these moments where you're just filled with this immense kind of gratitude for what it is that we get to do, you know? And that, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, to be able to sing for my job, I feel is always a privilege. But when you're singing uh, works that really move you, it's... I mean, there's just nothing like it. Mm. Um, I wanted to follow up. What? Yeah. What's the difference in the in the I guess the mood of the house, opera versus concert, and I guess matinee to evening could be a different. Sure. Well, I think you know. there is certainly a difference with standing on the stage and facing the audience, and you're really expecting, and especially in a piece like this that is very long. I mean, they've already been sitting there for an hour before I even sing. And then you're sharing this text with them and you're sort of expecting more from them. <laughs> I mean, that they really need to be to be able to experience the music and to really feel it. You're communicating with them in a more direct way, I'd say, than, than you are often in opera where you have the storytelling and you're, uh, you know, talking to other characters maybe on stage or there's this sort of uh, other wall that sort of separates you from from the audience, but in concert work, you're just standing there, you know, with trying to communicate this music, and you're just looking straight into the audience with nothing, nothing separating you. Yeah, uh, Christoph Campestrini. I've I've talked to other uh, conductors who t- tell me back to the audience, you can still uh, you can still feel a difference in the energy night to night. A lot. Is, is that the, that's a lot. Yeah. And actually, that's the great um, metaphysical quality of what we all do, that um, a lot of senses uh, are nonverbal. I mean, music in the best sense of the word uh, is nonverbal. And especially with the work that we're uh, uh, working on this week ma- with Mala 3, the, the aim of, of this composition is nothing less than to put the entire universe in music. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, this is why maybe he also picked such a huge scope for this. But the idea is that the first movement, for instance, uh, starts with uh, a, a depiction of um, stone, of, of huge mountains, such as here in Utah, for instance. <laughs> I, I happen to be born very close to the place where Mahler wrote the symphony. So when I came here for the first time in my life to Utah, I was startled to see the similarity of, of mm-hmm. the places. So let's hear um, the finale from uh, the first movement, which uh, Christoph Campestrini just described there uh, for you once again. And following this uh, short excerpt, a minute or two from the end of the uh, first movement from Mahler's Third Symphony, uh, Christoph Campestrini will continue describing the movements uh, to the end of the symphony. Uh, so here, music from uh, the first movement, Mahler Symphony Number no. 3, the Radio Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Markus Stentz. <laughs> Thank you. 
and then each movement describes a higher form of existence. It goes on to the flowers in the second movement, the animals in the third. The fourth then is man appearing with a very philosophical text by Nietzsche. Then we get an angelic vision uh, of, of the children's choir and the women's choir. And the very end, uh, the sixth movement, is a depiction of God in the form of pure love. So you can see it's a, quite a huge undertaking that uh, Mahler uh, did in, in this uh, symphony. And for us as, as performers, it's uh, I feel always very um, grateful for being able to communicate these kind of things uh, these kind of questions more than anything else to, to the audience because a lot of it is quite uh, deep down from the soul. It's uh, metaphysical in, in many ways. And, you know, for us as artists, we start on working on the music, the notes, the text and all of this. But the end, what we're trying to achieve is so much more. It's a message that we're trying to get across. And if you, to come back to your question, uh, if you feel that that message resounds with both the performers on stage and the audience in the back, then this is the greatest uh, gratitude you could feel the greatest feel of satisfaction that can mm. happen to an artist mm. mm-hmm. so here banal um what do you want that we talked about the audience um i'm sure you want the artist to have a certain kind of an experience maybe encounter some difficulties understand there are some difficult passages in this symphony oh yeah what 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 do you want the the, the orchestra to experience well this is a for me a, a type of project that I love to do and that is uh, one that brings people together and uh, that brings challenges as well and um, that we learn all from one another. In this particular case, of course, we have two wonderful world-known guest artists and in Christoph and, and Tamara and then we have our students most of the orchestra uh, that you'll hear on stage, who people who come to the concert, is going to be students, the members of the USU Symphony Orchestra, about 70 players. We will have 35 guests who are professional musicians from the area, from northern Utah, including some faculty members from the USU Music Department. And then we have uh, singers, 99 singers that are uh, a combination of the the women the women of the USU choirs and children the children from the Cash Children's Choir and uh, so so it is a, a continuum of, of different ages just like Mahler Symphony is also kind of a continuum of, of life where it starts with raw nature and it can it evolves through more complex f- forms of life until it goes to the most sublime spiritual aspect of, of energy and, and of life also here is is from childhood to to older ages and um, so, so, so it's it's very, very beautiful to see how this all this energy cross feeds, and uh, so the singers are are of course honored to sing next to Tamara, and the uh, instrumentalists are fascinated by working with with Christoph. So uh, the difficulties is is great. It's an opportunity to to develop abilities. I I feel that the musicians in the symphony orchestra, our students, will have grown so much from having had this experience. We have been rehearsing for a few months now, 
we started uh, readings of the symphony. We did seven readings of, of seven full rehearsals of it in uh, the fall of last year. And we have been rehearsing since January. Mm. And it's mm. that type of project that, that you just have to put in many hours mm. and look into the music, not only on its technical aspects, but to look to, to for the possible meanings for each one of, of the performers. And then when everything comes together, then it, that is, is fascinating. Mm. Mm. Uh, th- that's, uh, th- that's the magic, right, when it all comes together. Sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't. I always like to ask uh, performers, <laughs> do you have any stories? Uh, those are the best stories when, when disaster strikes. <laughs> <laughs> um, never disaster so yeah. far. So let's just like keep our fingers crossed that that's yeah. like we'll, yeah. we'll follow. I mean, I've had a few like rough moments on stage, but nothing that I would consider disastrous. I once wore yeah. blue fuzzy slippers out onto the stage because <laughs> I forgot to take them off. <laughs> they, Was this opera or a concert? An opera. Uh, an uh, opera, an yeah. opera. Blue fuzzy. So hopefully. Hopefully, some people at least thought that was part of the costume. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, because I was yeah. wearing a, a black business suit and, okay. <laughs> and gloves. I was supposed to be leaving to church, yeah. and I was wearing these big, my backstage slippers. There's a lot of moving parts in the theater, and so you'd, you'd, you know, it's always a miracle when it all works correctly. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, Tamara Mountford, uh, you come back to you know your alma mater. Uh, students be look, I imagine students who want a career like yours be looking at you and saying, how do I do that? What do you What do you tell them? You know, it's funny you should ask that because I just before this um, came from a question and answer sort of informal lunch that we had with some of the students here at Utah State. And, um, you know, I remember when I was a student, there was a singer, um, Selena Schaefer, a wonderful soprano who's based in Utah, who came to Utah State and she sang and then just did a little class where we were able to ask her questions. And as a student, uh, that was such a valuable experience for me just because I, I didn't know real life opera singers. I didn't really have a lot of models for how can you make this work and you know and she was really clear and and kind of upfront about how she was making juggling things with her family life and her career and how and how that worked for her and and that meant a lot to me at that stage. So uh, so it was nice to be able to chat with the students that are there now and see the the, the good things that they're doing at Utah State and um, and just you know answer look the things that they had that come yeah. up. So is your career now what you envisioned? You know, yes. I, I mean, I think I think it is actually. I yeah. I was really. I mean, I was really clear with my manager that I wanted a career that was opera and concert and chamber music and recital. And I feel like I've been able to sort of find that balance. I mean, from season to season, where it's you know shifts around a little bit more. And but. Um, yeah, so far it's it's going the way I hoped it would. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask uh, Christoph Capistrini, I want to get back to Mahler, but, uh, you know, the classical world, uh, music world today. Young person starting out, do they, is it, is it more hopeful or less hopeful now that they, you'll have a, a, a good, solid career? You know, in classical music, there have always been the callers who say that's the end, it's uh, uh, limited to a certain period. And it proved that over the ages, it always remained there because I think it has to do with the fact that it is really something deep that it says about the uh, la condition humaine, the 
human state and that uh, people in different phases of their lives uh, feel quite urgent the need to be inspired by sounds, by not just sounds in terms of beauty, but uh, by statements of what we are as people, where we come from, where we're heading to. And uh, very often uh, music being nonverbal and music being the language of the soul is quite an appropriate medium to ponder these questions. So I think that uh, music in one form or another, always uh, classical music, will have a role in the society. What is changing, though, is that certain um, regions in the world, I find, are uh, opening up more than in the past to classical music. I travel quite a bit to China, for instance, which is now developing into an incredible place for classical music. Two-thirds of all middle-class Chinese students of any family play the violin or the piano. So for them, and I couldn't at all say that about Europe, that's not the case. I don't know whether it ever was, but certainly not now. Um, and there's incredible curiosity that comes with that. In Chinese concert halls, entire families come with their children. Uh, that results in a little noisier concert atmospheres, which I don't mind in the least because it's great to see, you know, young people from entire families in, in the concert. So uh, to see that uh, classical music is of relevance is, is, is beautiful. And I think uh, one thing that the media and that the uh, internet and many other new forms of communication has opened up is that classical music is available in on a much broader range now and so i i i see a lot of great opportunities for classical music and uh, when you ask about young people starting now uh, i think it's the same as it was in any generation if if you feel the calling for that, if you feel that this is your life, that this is your fulfillment, it's as good as any time now to do it. And I would strongly encourage anybody who feels that to go for it. Mm. Along those lines, I would like to add that one thing that I would l love for people to uh, come away from hearing the Mahler Symphony is that it is a very approachable piece. Mm. As ambitious as it is, it is it has to do a lot with youth. And uh, it's one of the four first symphonies, and uh, all of them have to do with uh, the collection of, of folk tales of the boys' wonder horn, and uh, with poems from that. And you feel that energy, because uh, when uh, talking about for example, what the animals tell tells, tell me, you feel that that playfulness, and of co of course you feel raw nature and also wild life, but also kind of the playfulness of of the animals and the delicacy of the flowers and so on, and then when you hear the children singing as angels, it is very very innocent and childlike in a very beautiful and playful way. So I have the feeling that, that many children and youth would relate to, to this music and, uh, and what it expresses, even in the deepest and, and most spiritual moments, like at, at the very end, uh, that, that uh, people, will, if, they, if they come with innocent ears, as I'm sure that, that people will hear because of, of how people are, are, are always so... So, so uh, open and, and uh, uh, curious. 
that that uh, that it will have that that kind of effect. Mm-hmm. So I really strongly encourage audience members to come with their families, mm-hmm. and uh, as though we were in China. As though we were in China, yes, in, indeed. Uh, let's hear a little bit of the uh, the children uh, singing. This is uh, from Mahler's Symphony Number no. Three. Once again, this recording uh, features the Radio Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Marcus Stenz, the Women of the Netherlands Radio Choir, the National Children's Choir, and the alto here is Tamara Mumford. Music from Mahler's Third. You'll be able to hear uh, Mahler's Third Symphony in its entirety on the USU campus, March 23rd, this Saturday, 7.30 p.m., Danes Concert Hall. And we're talking with Tamara Mumford, who will be the mezzo-soprano, the alto, uh, in that performance. She sings with the Metropolitan Opera. She's a USU alumna. We're talking with the conductor for this performance, Austrian guest conductor Christoph Campestrini, and with the USU Symphony Orchestra uh, music director Sergio Bernal. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Flats Luxury Suites by Milieu Design, located at 22 East Center. Three flats located within steps of Logan's Downtown Theater District. Restaurants and shopping. Information at flatsluxurysuites.com. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive begins March 21st, but you don't have to wait till then. In fact, we hope you'll become an early bird donor. Early bird giving helps us reach our goal early. That means getting back to regular programming sooner. And all early bird donors will receive a UPR vinyl decal. That's in addition to the regular thank you gift that you might be interested in. 
You can just go right now to pledge online, upr.org. That's upr.org. Or you can pledge through our UPR app. And a big thank you to you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We've been exploring classical music and specifically Mahler and his third symphony. Here's the conclusion of our conversation with Christoph Campestrini, Tamara Mumford, and Sergio Bernal. And I think it's also very important that uh, there is this misconception, in my view, sometimes out there that in order to uh, appreciate classical music, you have to know all these kind of things and you have to study. Uh, the contrary is, is uh, the truth. M- Mozart once said about his music, my music aims to appeal to the least studied as much as to the most studied. So that's the quality of great music that you can appreciate it on many different levels. So, and as as you say, say, I I totally agree. This is is music that communicates quite directly to everybody. So uh, even if you don't have so much experience with classical music, it's worth to to be um, captured by this uh, wonderful world. Exactly. And I think Mm. it's that your experience just differs then. You know, if it's the first time hearing it, you'll have a completely different experience from one who's heard many recordings or, you know, even um, I've I've been able to uh, sing this piece several times. And, you know, each time that I hear it, there's something a little bit different in the texture that sticks out to me or I have a different experience with it from knowing the piece a little bit more. But I think you're exactly right that even somebody who has no experience with the piece will will certainly um, feel something from it. And although it's long, I think there's it's it is accessible. Mm-hmm. It, it can be an intellectual experience, mm-hmm. of course, but it, above all, it should and, and uh, it probably is more of a intuitive experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a sonic experience, because yes. with imagine eight horns starting <laughs> the entire thing, yeah. uh, you, with an orchestra of more than 100 and, and these beautiful voices on stage, the yes. choir and, and the source. I mean, it, it is a, a sensuous experience on many levels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now how the, the Kent Concert Hall has been remodeled into the Danes Concert Hall, the, you can hear everything. And it's a, it's a very uh, supple sound and with rich richness of color. And it's a generous sound and, and your body vibrates with it. And it's powerful as mm. well. Yeah, I can't wait to get in there. I haven't been in the new space yet since oh, it's been haven't? renovated. When okay. I was a student, mm-hmm. it was the old Kent Concert Hall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was always one of the great things about um, uh, being a classical singer is that you don't need any amplification, you know, and, and being able to sing over an orchestra is, and project is um, is one of the really things I one of the things I love about about doing this being a classical singer and so having a space that is uh, more conducive to that is exciting I can't mm-hmm. wait <laughs> yeah <laughs> come down just a just a few minutes left in our conversation um and uh, Sergio I want to uh, maybe get to conclusions here what what do you most want people to come away with if they come to the concert each person with uh, their own interpretation or their own meaning, a uh, sense of meaning from the experience. And there is very much to draw from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and I think it's a wonderful experience to to be watching students mm. on on a stage who have been working, you know, many many hours to prepare this, and to see them presenting it alongside of professionals who are doing this. You know, with the orchestra, we have the students in the orchestra, but all, as well as these, you know, hired musicians, and then we have the children's choir, and then we have the um, the women's choirs of of the university. And I think just being able to experience this this work that has taken so many to um, to, to combine in order to, to bring this to the audience. I hope people can can see that and appreciate, um, you know, what that experience would be like. Yeah. What, what do you hope, uh, Christoph Campestrini? I will, I hope that the muses will smile down on us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that the message of the symphony will flow through the concert hall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping mm-hmm. for. Yeah. yeah. So the performance is Saturday, 7.30, Danes Concert Hall. We're going to hear the last three or four minutes of the symphony now. Mahler's Third Symphony, Radio Philharmonic Orchestra, Markus Stentz conducting.
Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.